So we're back. We're back. And it's time for Crime and Time on the Rocks. So we're drinking a champagne cocktail. Uh huh. It's called the Yellow Bicycle. It's yellow. It's yellow. <laughs> so it probably would have been even more yellow, but we had to sub one of the ingredients per use. Oh, okay. What'd you do? So this is um, a half ounce of Saint Germain. Mm-hmm. A half. What is Saint Germain. It's an elderflower liqueur. Oh. So we subbed um, the next ingredient, which is a half ounce of yellow chartreuse. We used green chartreuse because we already had it. So I didn't want to spend $75 for a bottle of yellow chartreuse. I can't imagine that yellow chartreuse would be worth $75 because the green chartreuse is not worth the $23 that I paid for it. Right. So (laughs) anyway, you (coughs) shake that up in a shaker, pour it into a coupe glass, and top with champagne. We've had a lot of cocktails topping with champagne lately. We do, yeah, we have. So, and then garnish with a lot with a lemon, not a lime, because it's not yellow. No, lemons are lemons yellow. Lemons are yellow. So I did a lemon wheel floating in it because it's a yellow bicycle. <laughs> so it's trying to be cute. It's very cute. It's very cute. And we're drinking them out of the copper-stemmed coupe glasses. Which are just my new faves. They're really cute. I love these glasses. We drank out of these last night as well. Um, so the color is incredibly appropriate to my story. It's mine. My story does have a little color element to it, but it doesn't. It's not yellow. Ah. But mostly the rest of the story is about... It's relevant. Uh-huh. Yeah. So... Yeah, so the color, the yellow color, yellow not only matches, but the fact that it kind of looks like urine matches too. Oh, gross! <laughs> so let's try it. Okay. Surprisingly, I kind of like it. Yeah, it's not horrid. It's very herbaceous. Uh huh. Um, I don't get the champagne, like the sweetness from the champagne, really at all. No. Because it cuts this herby flavor cuts through it. It does. It's yeah. I can. It almost tastes lemony. Yeah, it's kind of nice. It's refreshing. I think it would be good um, in the summer. That's probably not something I'll drink time and time again, but I like it. No, but I wouldn't say no to one if I was offered one. No, and if you needed a theme drink that's yellow and bubbly, this would be perfect. Okay, so if you have a party for what I'm going to talk about, you can make these drinks. So what are you going to talk about? I am going to talk about something. (laughs) I hope so. <laughs> <laughs> I got my information from history.com, um, Wikipedia, and Mum U Cycling. M U M M U Cycling. So it starts out in a completely odd way. Um, Alfred Dreyfus was born in 1859, and he was a French artillery captain in the French army. And he was convicted of passing military secrets to the Germans in 1894. And this, he was court-martialed and found guilty. Um, A French spy found pieces of paper in the garbage can that looked like they had his handwriting on them. That's how he got convicted. And that's how he got convicted. Well, thank goodness for forensic evidence nowadays. Right? So, um, a little while later in 1896, so meanwhile, Dreyfus is in jail, the new head of the Army's intelligence unit, George Pequot, found evidence pointing to another guy as the actual um, traitor. But when he went and told his bosses that he found this evidence, they told him to shut up. 
Well, yeah, they can't. Yeah. Yeah, you can't do that. And then he got transferred to um, North Africa. And then he got put in prison. Oh, goodness. Yeah. No. Just for trying to do the right thing. Because, as it turns out, Dreyfus didn't do it. Um, the They actually eventually put another guy in prison. They let Dreyfus out. They pardoned him in um, uh, 1906. No, they, yeah, they exonerated him in 1906 they pardoned him and let him out of prison in 1899 um part of the reason that he was let out of prison was an article by emile zola who is a well-known author and she wrote the letter j accuse oh okay i'm familiar with you that. Heard yeah, that yeah well you probably also heard of this whole scandal because it was the dreyfus affair okay yes yeah yeah. yeah yeah so no i'm not talking about the dreyfus affair well that's not <laughs> Related to the cocktails? The Dreyfus Affair so polarized France that... I see where this is going. People just, like, were completely... You either were 100% on his side or you were 100% against him. So, while this is going on, there was a little sports newspaper called Lavello. And it had a huge circulation of 80,000 copies a day being sold. And the Dreyfus Affair was its demise, basically. Um, <clears throat> several of the men that worked for the little paper, it was run by a man named Guilford, and several of the men that worked for the little paper were so adamant one way or the other on the Dreyfus Affair that they left. They oh could no longer work together. Oh, wow. Yeah. That's, I mean, you think about how polarizing our recent political events have been. Uh-huh. And it didn't get to the point. I mean, maybe it did, and I'm just not aware, but... You didn't. You don't see a lot of people quitting their jobs. Mm-hmm. Well, not only did they quit their jobs, but these men. Um, Con- I'm going to butcher these names because I am not French. Um, Comte Jules, Albert de Dion, Adolphe Clemente, and Edouard Michelin um, decided we're going to go start our own paper, and so they did. It was called La Auto, but. It wasn't doing very well. Oh. Nobody was buying La Auto. They really wanted to put Lavello out of business, but nobody was buying La Auto. So they had a meeting. Um, the investors are not happy. November 20th, 1902, they have a meeting. And their cycling reporter, Gio Leffrey, piped up and says, Hey, how about we have a race? A Latour. <laughs> a Latour. So he decides they, he's gonna, they want to do this race. And he, they're like, yeah, that's a great idea. So he and another man, um, DeGrange, I think, D-E-S-G-R-A-N-G-E, um, talked about it over lunch, and they got it all worked out, and they went, and DeGrange was actually quoted as saying, this is going to nail Guilford's beak shut. <laughs> so they were, they still hated each other all these years later. Um, so DeGrange and Lafford hammered everything out over lunch and they took it to the head of the paper, Victor Godet, Godet, Geo, probably Godet. Godet, probably. Um, Got it. Got it. It's Godet. He loved the idea. He was reported to have thrown the papers, thrown the keys to the company safe at DeStrange and said, take whatever you need. What? Yeah. Where do we get a boss like that? Right? I would like a boss like that. Okay, so this small little paper announced the first Tour de France on January 19th, 1903. 
So they originally set it as a five-stage race from May 31st to July 5th. It was going to go start in Paris and go to Lyon, Marseille, Bordeaux, Nantes, Nantes, and then back to Paris. But they only got 15 people to enter. I, that's not bad, but for five stages, that's... Yeah. And then, so they were going to drop the idea. They're like, eh, this is stupid. Nobody's coming. But then they decided, okay, let's give this another try. So they cut the length of days down to only 19 days because they were finding people were saying, well, we can't take that much time off of our jobs. So they cut it down to 19 days and they put it in July and then they gave, they decided to give a daily prize to all riders who averaged 20 kilometers or 12 miles per hour. Um, they cut the entry fee in half to 12 miles per francs. hour is really slow, by the way, if you ride a bike. Yeah, because they wanted everybody to get money every day. Oh, okay. Because yeah. I'm like, that's really slow. Like, I guess average, considering that there are hills, that yeah. might be decent. But yeah. if you're on a flat surface or even like slight hills, you're going to be higher than you're that. You're going to be higher than that. Well, the idea was they wanted people because how it worked out was the daily bonus that they got for averaging that was about equal to what they would have gotten had they gone to work in a factory. Oh, okay. Yeah. That's nice. And then they increased the first prize to 12,000 francs. And then they gave cash daily prizes for the daily winners of 3,000 francs. So you get basically the same as if you had gone to work every day. And if you win, you would get, it was six times what the average person brought home in a year. Oh my goodness. So that's a way to get participation because people are like, I have nothing to lose. Right. Well, and that's what they got. They got a lot of, um, they got some professionals, but they also got a lot of amateurs. They got a lot of people who are just like, hey, that sounds like fun. And they got a lot of people who were unemployed and had nothing else to do. Yeah. They're like, I have a job for 14 days yeah. or whatever it was. So they ended up with 60 people and they... They had 60 people, so they ran with six people. So the average stage was, for that first race, was 250 miles. That's the average. The first stage was 300 miles. Oh my gosh. Yeah. That's a lot. They had one to three rest days in between. They rode day and night. The first stage was 300 miles. They rode as individuals, not teams. And there was all kinds of rules. Each rider had to make all of their own repairs. They were allowed one bicycle. Oh, you, God. you started with a bike, you ended with a bike. They had people, they had cyclists, tires around their neck and tubes around their neck because they couldn't get. Yeah. You, I mean, they don't have cars following you, no. handing you a new bike. There was no pace cars, no support cars, no nothing. If your bike broke down, you stopped and fixed it. Did you? If you couldn't, you're done. Did you tell your mother-in-law that you were researching this? No, I need to. Mother-in-law is an avid fan of the Tour de France. Avid. They will record it. And, or they'll get up and watch it. So they had to ride, they had to ride with wooden wheel frames because DeGrange was afraid that the, on the hills, the downhills, the braking would produce so much, so much heat that it would melt the tire, the glue that was used to affix the tires to the metal wheels. Oh no. Yeah. So they made him do the wooden wheels. So their <laughs> race starts. They have 60 people, 23 riders quit after the first stage. I bet. That's a <laughs> like, lot. Out. Hippolyte Encour had to quit because he got stomach cramps, because he was um, taking the sports drink of the day, and he was swigging red wine. <laughs> <laughs> so he got stomach cramps. Um, Maurice Garin, 
who was a 32-year-old former chimney sweep, won the first stage by only two minutes, but then by the next stage, he had a lead of over two hours because his nearest competitor got two flat tires, fixed them, got back on his bike, rode a little while, got tired, decided to sit sit down to rest for a minute, and he fell asleep. Oh, no. <laughs> this is hilarious. Because yes. it's so different from what you think of today. Yes. So he actually went to went on to win. Um, Garen went on to win the first tour. He was, there was only 21 people that finished out of the original 60. And the last pace, place rider was 64 hours behind the winner. 64, 64 hours. hours. That's oh just my insane. So like you have to wait around for days for them to come. So basically they didn't, because the way it works now is like this particular day is this stage and you have to finish it that day. Uh-huh. But then apparently you just went from stage to stage to stage and you could be 64 hours behind. Yeah. Isn't that crazy? Yeah. That's not so good for (laughs) spectators though. No. So stunt 100% work. Newspaper sales soared. They eventually did the very next year, put the other paper out of business. So the race was a huge success and they decided, hey, let's do it again next year. So in July of 1904, they they held the second um, Tour de France and... Race number two, cheating started. Well, I mean, it took a while. It so. took a while. Yeah, two whole races. Um, Garen, another rider, came into St. Etienne, and fans of another rider, Antoine Favre, F-A-V-R-E, um, formed a human blockade, ripped them off their bikes, and started beating them up. Oh, that's terrible. Yes. <clears throat> so another man, and his name just popped up, and I'm not, I didn't even write it down because it just popped up, and that was the first I'd ever heard of it. He actually had to fire a pistol in the air to get people to stop rioting. Another rider was later disqualified, and his fans threw broken glass and tacks on the roads in front of the riders. That's dirty. So uh-huh. people, like, right away were picking favorites. Got into it immediately. Um, some riders were hitching rides in cars in the dark. Because remember, they're riding day and night, so it's nighttime, so nobody can see me. I'm going to get in this car and ride for a little while. Oh my gosh. Some people took food and other help from other people. It was really bad. So DeGrange was so upset, he disqualified Garen and t- top other top three finishers. He just was very, very um, upset by the whole thing. In fact, the headline in the paper the day after the race read in all capital letters, the end. Oh, that's bad. He really got invested in this race. It was his baby. There are some other things later. Um, So the next year they ran the race only in the daytime. So this way they couldn't have people jumping into cars at night. Yeah. By 1908, the paper was selling 250,000 copies a day. They had put Lavello out of business in 2004. They were at 500,000 in 1923, and they actually set a record in 1933 with a readership of 854,000 papers daily. So a newspaper for the young people is (laughs) a website printed out on paper. In this case, it was yellow paper. And I'll more about that later. So the tour is run every year in July since 1903, except during the two world wars. And they played with different types ways to score. It almost felt like, as I was reading about it, that every year they tried something new. We're going to try this now. We're going to try this now. Um, <clears throat> different types of score, different teams. 
individuals, amateurs, non-amateurs. They just tried all kinds of things. In the 1920s, there were a lot of underhanded tricks going on by the bike companies and manipulations to get their guy to win. The 1929 race. What did they do? Use rubber tires? I don't know. <laughs> it didn't say what they did, but it did say that, and it didn't say what was wrong with this guy either. But the 1929 race was contrived and manipulated by the Alcyon team. Um, and the man who won, DeWeel, was very, very sick. And DeGrange was actually quoted as saying, my race has been won by a corpse. Oh, no. Yeah. He was really upset. At, the t- at that time, he wanted to go back to all of the old rules, and he wanted to give everybody a plain yellow bike with no gears. And no gears. That, no gears. And that was the bike you had to ride. That's, that's harsh. Yeah. Well, they didn't do it. Like, do you even remember on our Tweed Ride bike ride, that little tiny hill you have to go up at the very end? Uh-huh. And with no gears, it's still hard. Yes, it's very hard. And you do this. I don't very well. So it was very difficult for me. But so um, by the 1930s, the Nas- they tried to use national teams to get away from the bike companies doing it. Um, Destrange was in very poor health in 1936, and he had to have prostate surgery. Well, at the time, they had to do two surgeries, and they were scheduled for either side of the race, and he just couldn't not be there. He convinced his doctor, just please let me go cover my race. It's my race. I have to go. I have to be there. Day two, he gets a fever, and he never really recovers from that. He died in 1940 um, in August at his home, Um, but from complications all the way back from 1936 from the surgery that he didn't really recover from. Um, then he was taken over by his deputy, Jacques, 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 Jacques Gadet. The race was suspended during World War II, and they didn't run again until 1947. And then meanwhile, in 1944, it was closed. Oh, yeah. So meanwhile, in 1940, 1944, the paper was closed, um, be- and it's all of its holdings, including the race, were turned over to the state because they were publishing articles too close to the Germans. Oh. Uh-huh. So the state took everything, um, which I thought was interesting in that they were started because of the Dreyfus affair, who was accused of selling secrets to the Germans. Yeah. And Those- now they're being folded because of their potential association? Poten- yeah. They were just selling articles that were apparently too close for France's liking. But this was 1944. That was a yeah. thing. So the race, by this time the race is now, it's re <clears throat> happening again in 1947. And it settled to a 20 to 25 stage event that has continued, that continued that way until the 1980s. <laughs> um, national teams continued until 1961. It had started to become a problem because the teams were different sizes. Some nations were combining teams to get bigger, to get more people. And also bike sales were lagging because the bike manufacturers were really using the tour as a sales, as a marketing tool and as a sales tool to try and get their name out there. Uh-huh. And they weren't able to do that because it was national Yeah, it teams. just said it Netherlands. Yeah. It didn't say. They had like one little thing that had their name on it, just one little patch on the front of the jersey. So, um... They went back to company teams in 1962, then they went back to national teams in 1967, and then back to trade teams in 1969. 
And it's been that way ever since. It has, yeah. Okay. Yeah. But so it's just back and forth and back and forth. Um, doping became a problem pretty early on. A man named Tom Simpson died in 1967 during the mountain section. He had a heart attack after taking amphetamine. Ooh. Um, the riders went on strike. And the Union Cyclist International introduced limits to the daily distances, imposed mandatory rest days, and introduced drug tests. There are several classifications with the special jerseys. The best, the general classification, the most prestigious one. I found out if you win multiple classifications, you wear the most prestigious jersey. Mm -hmm. That which makes is, sense. Yeah, which has always been the yellow jersey. And it is a yellow jersey because their paper... La Auto was printed on yellow paper. Oh, okay. Yeah, isn't that cool? Yeah, because it's a total thing, like the mm -hmm. yellow jersey. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's a thing. So this is the, the race leader. The mountain classification is a polka dot jersey. Mm -hmm. I've it's, never seen the polka dot it's jersey. It's white with red polka dots. Uh -huh. I don't think I've ever seen it. The points classification is a green jersey. And they had, they introduced the young rider in the 50s. And it's a white jersey. And it used to be any rider that was under 26. And then it became... Um, any writer in their first three years of writing, and now it is limited to only first-time racers. Okay, interesting. Yeah. There's been several incarnations of the classifications of the jerseys through the years. I didn't write them all down, but they went back and forth and back and forth. Um, the yellow jersey, however, is the oldest. Doping and cheating have always been a huge problem. In 1998, the, the race was actually dubbed the Tour of Shame instead <laughs> of the Tour of France. Tour de France. Um, they then there was Lance, yeah. our friend Lance. The Lance scandal. But you know what? He's not the only one that was doing what was. He's absolutely not. Yeah, he just was the one that was winning the yellow jerseys that right. was doing it. Right. It was really interesting when I was looking at this. They had um, on the side of one of the websites all the years and a little like tag thing of of the color of that's common in the country's flag and the little letters abbreviation of the country mm -hmm. and then there's that whole seven year section and it's just blank oh wow there's nothing in it it was really interesting yeah it's interesting because when they stripped him of his um wins they couldn't just go to the next person and be like you did it you know uh -huh. because you, those people were also doing what he did yeah so that's why it's like they just are those years just didn't happen. Yeah. So he won second, seven, if you don't know who this is, Lance Armstrong is who we're talking about. And he won seven consecutive, consecutive tours. And this is right after he recovered from um, cancer. And so he really, this just increased the popularity of the tour immensely, especially all over the U.S. It was huge. But then a month after his second win in August of 2005, a little paper called Le Equipe, published documents <clears throat> that said he was using EPO in 1999 race and his urine urine had also shown mm -hmm. in acceptable levels of glucocorticoid steroid I don't know how to corticocal I don't know however you pronounce that thing I'm steroids sure to do it. yeah steroids he said it was from an approved cream that he was using for saddle sores and he insisted I didn't dope I didn't dope I didn't cheat I didn't cheat but then um in August of 1998, he was... No, strike that. But the United States Anti-Doping Agency stripped him of all of his wins of the, of the tour and all victories 
after August 1st, 1998. Anything he won mm-hmm. after August 1st, 1998, gone. They banned him for life for competing in professional sports. And he, who had been denied, 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 didn't appeal the ruling. He was like, okay. Then on in January 2013, he admitted in an interview with Oprah that he did do it. So I saw something recently where he did some sort of charity ride and just participated in it. And uh-huh. I'm like, that's funny. Because it's kind of just like, <laughs> I, I could still do everything I, I was doing. Yeah. I don't need to have, be paid for it, I guess. Yeah. Well, he still enjoys it. Maybe. Yeah. Um, and Oprah, for those of you who don't know, was a huge thing. Yeah. She was like the queen of all media for years and years and years and years and years um for all you young folks who are like oprah who's oprah um in 1910 there's been four deaths during the race um several people have died in accidents related to the race there was something in one of the early races people would compete during the day and then when they got to the little towns they would like do acrobatic tricks or things to get people to give them money so that they could pay for a hotel. Oh no. They're like, I just rode a hundred miles. Let me stand on my head. <laughs> give me money. I want to sleep. So the four deaths in 1910, the French racer, um, Adolf Her- Hellery, H-E-L-I-E-R-E, um, drowned in the French Riviera. It was a rest day. He was playing. I was going to say, he, he wasn't bike riding then. <laughs> no. Um, in 1935, the Spanish writer Francisco Cepeda fell down a ravine. On, like while he was riding. While he was riding. That's <laughs> sad. Yeah. Um, in 1967, Tom Simpson died of heart failure. And in 1995, um, Fabio Castorelli crashed at 55 miles. Yeah, away. I've seen that video. Actually. Have you? It's Ooh, terrifying. I can't even imagine. I would not want to see it. Yeah, that's a pretty famous, like, well-known. I'm not going to look. Yeah. I don't want to see it. There's a couple that I've seen like that where you just know uh, it's just bad. Bike riding just scares me. I mean, I guess I kind of like it, but especially after I broke my wrist, it really scares me. Going downhill at that speed, I mean, the fastest I've been is like 52 miles an hour going down. Oh my gosh. On a bike with like, you know, millimeters of tire touching the ground. That's and insane. The thing is like, you feel okay. Except, if you lost control, you're done. Like you feel okay by yourself, but there's all these other things. Like, are you going to hit a pothole? Like is another bike rider too near you? Yeah. Or is a car coming? Like, do you have to, is a wind going to gust? Yeah. So it's a little terrifying. I cannot even imagine. I used to get so scared riding bikes, even as a kid, with by other bikes near me. I did, when I was a kid, used to ride bikes a lot, a lot, a lot. And one time I fell off of my bike into a patch of star thistle. Ouch. Yeah. You've probably had a, what? You've had a lot of star thistle trauma. I've had a lot of star thistle trauma. <laughs> All back of star thistle trauma. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, so what are you telling me about? So I'm going to tell you about cyclist Tom Justice. Justice, I like it. So in 1983, Tom Justice was 13. He uh, was at a cycling event in Northbrook, Illinois. 
he was just there as a spectator. He'd never even been to a cycling race, never seen it. Uh-huh. But um, he was invited by a friend of his, and he only went because the girl that invited him, he had a crush on. Aww. Yeah. So anyway, um, at one point, the announcer said, anyone interested in racing, bring up your bike and try your luck. Oh my goodness. That's such an 80s thing to do. uh Uh-huh. So a week later, Tom brought his maroon Schwinn to the velodrome. So this is track cycling. Okay. um, What is what we're talking about. So That seems scarier. There were about a dozen kids that gathered on the track. They were all wearing t-shirts and shorts except for Tom. Tom had on padded cycling shorts, a jersey, gloves, and a professional grade helmet that his dad purchased for him. Okay, he's never done any cycling event before, and dad goes out and buys him swag. Yeah. Okay. So Tom won the 12 to 14 year old division easily. It was Um, all the padded shorts. It's all the padded shorts. (laughs) So he had previously tried all kinds of other sports, basketball, baseball, soccer, and he wasn't really very good at any of those. Uh Uh-huh. Tom's father, though, Jay, was a natural athlete. and Jay Justice. Jay Justice. I'm sorry. I know. (laughs) So Jay was just thrilled that Tom had a sport because I think maybe that's contributed to him buying him all this professional stuff before he even tried it. Yay, my kid's doing something. My kid's in sport. (laughs) (laughs) My kid is playing sport. (laughs) So later on... At, during races, Jay would tell Tom, get out in front. Don't let anyone get around you. Oh. So he was like, you know, a he soccer was, mom of the... He was bike dad. Yeah, he was bike dad. So by, by, the, by Tom's junior year, Tom was training at the velodrome on Mondays and Wednesdays, and he raced every Thursday. He also spent hours each week pedaling around the back roads of Libertyville, which is where he lived, Libertyville, okay. Illinois. I'm sorry. I know. His name's Justice. The Justices live in Libertyville. The Justices live in Libertyville. (laughs) It's too much. That's hysterical. Child number one will tell you that I was going to name her Liberty or Justice because um, she was... And they named child number two and for all. (laughs) I hadn't planned on that. Um, But I was going to name her Liberty or Justice because she was due in July, towards the beginning of July. and. I, you know, being a history teacher, I thought that was just an awesome name. And she's very glad that she was, came induced early. And not named Liberty and not or named Justice. Liberty or Justice. <laughs> <laughs> but she was actually born closer to the 4th of July, being born in June, than she would have been had she gone all the way to her due date. Yeah, well. I still could have named her Liberty or Justice. You still, you can always name her Liberty or Justice. <laughs> I could go back and change it. Yeah. Okay, anyway, tell me more about the Justices that live in Libertyville. Yes. So... <laughs> Um, Tom also spent hours each... Oh, yeah, I said that. Um, So in 1987, Tom was selected to attend the Olympic training camp in Colorado Springs. Wow. So basically, this was all because USA Cycling was finally on top. They had won nine medals at the Olympics in 1984, but this was mostly thanks to the Soviet Union boycott. Oh, okay. But since they had the momentum, they wanted to keep the momentum and like really put everything into developing their next Olympic team. So they began a training program and they picked 40 young American cyclists to groom towards the Olympic track of cycling. Oh, okay. So he's not in the Olympics. He's just training at their facility with their trainers to see if he's good enough. Yes. Okay. And he was, you know, only a junior in high school. And so, yeah. So Tom was built perfectly for track cycling. He was tall. He had powerful legs 
kind of like speed skaters where they're, you know, just massive legs. Uh-huh. But um, his best event was the thousand meter sprint. And he frequently overtook the leader during the final seconds of the race. That was kind of his thing. Like he would oh, wow. hang back just a little. Uh-huh. And then in the last like 45 seconds of the race or whatever, just jet, like jet out in front and win. That would have to be really cool to see. Yeah. So then as a senior in high school, Tom was elected senior class president. Aww. And in the 1988 Libertyville High School yearbook, there was a page titled, What Will Your Friends Be Doing in 10 Years? So someone wrote this about Tom. On the cover of a Wheaties box with his bike. Very cool. Yeah. Um, I'm sorry, but Libertyville High School being student body president, it just sounds like... It sounds fake. Yes. So by the, t- by the end of his senior year, Tom's plans was, were to attend Southern Il- Illinois University, train, and stay focused, and be patient. Okay. So mostly, most top track cyclists didn't usually qualify for the Olympics until their mid to late 20s anyway, so he had some time. Uh-huh. Um, so yeah, he was like, go to college, train, just wait until it's my turn. Does that have something to do with the... The, the sport as far as the body structure that it takes and you're just not there until you're older? I think maybe because, well, maybe it's different now because a lot of things have changed in terms of that. But like men, typically, you know, their muscular development isn't complete. That's true. It's a little later. Yeah. So I think that might have just been it. So Tom was at Southern Illinois University for six years. He eventually graduated in 1994. He went to a four-year college for six years. There's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with that. I did it, too. I'm, I I'm did teasing. it, too. <laughs> <laughs> I'm kidding. Yes. So while in college, his commitment to cycling lapsed a little bit. Um, he didn't put in the training necessary to be a world-class contender. He just pretty much coasted through collegiate cycling. Did Tom discover girls? Tom didn't. He. I mean, yeah, but that's not. that wasn't his problem. <laughs> okay. So in college, Tom founded a cycling club and in the club he thought he was pretty hot because he was surrounded by amateurs that he could easily beat so that was gratifying i think for his ego yeah so instead of training hard since he was you know slacking off so much he pretty much just spent time with his buddies drinking beer and smoking cigarettes okay that's a great thing for an athlete to do Mm -hmm. so as i mentioned during college he became kind of a slacker Switched majors a bunch of times. He went from philosophy to sociology to theater. He rushed All things you can make a ton of money in. Ton of money. <laughs> he rushed a frat, but he never ended up joining. He thought maybe he could be an artist. He tried piano. He tried sculpture. He didn't excel in any of it. Okay. So, graduated in 1994, and then he moved to L.A. to train with the U.S. Olympic team again. So, so we're going to be serious about cycling again. Yeah, he's serious about cycling again. Well, he decided to be. So another cyclist who did later compete in the 96 Olympics, who was training at the time, said, Tom's fast, but he doesn't, tra- he doesn't train right. He needs to apply himself. Oh, ooh. Yeah. So <clears throat> it's reminding me of Talladega Nights. Is that the name of that movie? I don't know. <laughs> With Will Ferrell and the racing. I don't, I'm not a movie person. <laughs> okay. I don't know it. So pretty soon Tom washed out of this and then he returned to oh, Chicago and he did have a girlfriend. Her name was Laura, and they had an apartment in Ravenswood. He got a job. He actually got a legit job. He was a social worker. He um, oh. specialized in helping homeless schizophrenics. Oh, my. So 
then, true to Tom's form, he got tired of helping people, and he missed the instant gratification that he got from cycling. Okay. So, he made this list of all the other things that he could do besides cycling that would still give him this instant gratification. So, some of these... So, he knows that he's this way. Yeah, he knows. So, his list included helicopter pilot, lock picker, priest, and EMT. Okay. So he started with the third idea. A eclectic. Yeah. He applied to seminary, but he wasn't admitted. Why would a priest give you instant gratification? I don't know. I don't really understand that part because the other ones are like more adrenaline based. Yeah. And this one's like. Is it just because the people are like looking to you for guidance or maybe something? Maybe it's like a power thing, like how surgeons kind of. Yeah. I don't know. Bizarre. Um, so yeah, he applied. I like how there's a criminal and a priest on there. <laughs> He applied for seminary, wasn't admitted. Then he applied for a position as a DEA agent. Again, he was denied. (laughs) Uh, He also tried and failed. How old is this kid at this time? Oh, he's like, he's like 27, or no, 24, I think. Oh my goodness. So he also tried and failed at a career as a repo man, an underwater welder, and he washed out of the French Foreign Legion. Oh my he goodness. actually went to, to France the and joined the French Foreign Legion <laughs> and washed out. I'm going to run off to the French Foreign Legion. Yeah. My first kiss became an underwater welder. Well, that's probably better than joining the French Foreign Legion. I'm sure. I but I, I saw him years later in at the fair and he told me he was an underwater welder and he's like, yeah, I live in New Orleans. I work about four days a month. The rest of the time I just play. Nice. Yeah. Must be nice. So then, one night in 1998, he revisited his list because he had pretty much had to scratch off all those ideas. Yeah. And he had continued revisiting it from time to time, adding things, scratching them out. But this time he scrawled two letters. B-R. B-R. Bank robber. Oh! That sound was horrible. If all of your dogs start howling, (laughs) I apologize. I don't know what happened in my throat. So... Later on in 1998, around Halloween, Tom planned his first heist. He was going to be a priest and now he's going to be a bank robber? Yeah. Makes total sense. Total sense. That's one follows the other. So he went to a wig shop. He chose a wig that had black braids and short bangs. And I guess like the the description was like kind of like Rick James. (laughs) And. So October 23rd, he got his messenger bag. He got his bike. He's robbing, robbing a bank on a bike. Uh-huh. And he pedaled toward downtown Libertyville. He, in his hometown. In his hometown. So he parked his bike. Because nobody's going to know the dude that rode bikes and almost went to the Olympics <laughs> in his hometown, whose name is Justice, in Libertyville. I know. Who was also the student body president of the high school. So he parked his bike. <laughs> he put clothing on over his cycling gear. He put his wig on, he put sunglasses and a hat on, and he went around the corner to a payphone, and he made an anonymous call to the police department, and he said there would be, there was a man walking around the park with a rifle. Distraction. Yeah, so he created a a diversion, and then he entered the bank. He walked up to the teller, and he handed her an index card, but he wouldn't let go of it, because he had no intention of leaving any evidence behind. Okay. So the teller read what was on the index card, which was probably like, give me all your money, you're being robbed or something. It didn't say. It wasn't like, hey, Susie, remember when we went to yeah. prom together? <laughs> <laughs> so she read the message and he handed her a white plastic bag. She filled it with cash and then Tom left the bank. 
He looked at his watch and he realized that the whole entire thing had take, taken like 45 seconds. Oh, wow. Yeah. Do they have that much money in those little drawers, though? Isn't it just like a few hundred dollars? Um. Well, so he's been... I'll, I'll go into that. Okay. But yeah. So he got back on his... Or he got back to where his bike was. He stripped down, put all the crap in his messenger bag, the money in his disguise, and then he just casually cycled back to his parents' house. So, okay. their house happened to be right next door to the Libertyville chief of police. That's an aside. Oh my goodness. So, a few days later... Tom thinks he's a lot smarter than he is, probably. So, a few days later, Tom tossed the wig in a dumpster. The cash, which was $5,580, sat for months in a gym bag inside the closet of his old room at his parents' house. Wow. Can you imagine if mom had found that? I know. It's like, Mom, don't look. (laughs) (laughs) Son, aren't you too old for that? So Tom assumed that the bills were traceable, so initially he just let it sit there. Uh Um, He kept two $20 bills as souvenirs, and then he separated the remaining cash into brown paper lunch bags, and he threw them into dumpsters. He didn't... Oh my goodness. Yeah, he didn't keep the money. He just threw he it just all He just wanted it for the thrill. Apparently, he, that was just a really cool way to get $40. $40 <laughs> that he keeps. Oh my goodness. So, October 27th, 1999, which was nearly one year to the day of his first robbery, Tom robbed the Northern Trust Bank in Lake Forest. This time, he got away with $3,247. And instead of throwing all the money away, he took it all most of it, and put it in places where homeless people would find it. And he kept... Oh, so he's Robin Hooding it. He Robin Hooded it, yeah. Okay. So he kept all of the $2 bills out, and he hid those outside of his apartment complex for kids in his apartment building to find. Okay, because you want the homeless people and the kids to be arrested for trying to pass money that was involved (laughs) in a bank robbery. I don't think he thought that, but yeah. So... (laughs) That was October 27th, and then January 14th of 2000, he robbed the LaSalle Bank in Evanston, and he made off with $2,599 that time. Oh my goodness. So he's like on a little career path here. He's finally yeah, applying he's himself. he's doing well. Um, he's not making any money. He's not. Is he still living with Mommy and Daddy in Libertyville? He's bouncing back and forth between girlfriend Laura's apartment and Mommy and Daddy in Libertyville. Okay. So later during the winter time, he decided that he would go to back to Southern California again to train for the Olympic trials. He's okay. Yeah. So he still had his classification as a category one racer. So that meant that he was automatically qualified for the Olympic trials. All he had to do was show up there and race and try to make the Olympics. He didn't have to like qualify to get to the trials. Okay. So he moved in with one of his old cycling buddies from college. And this guy, whoever he was, um, became a Navy jet pilot. So when Tom moved there, he was living with a Navy jet pilot, not a cycling buddy. Okay. Yeah. So he was, he had previously cycled with him. Yeah. Now he's. Now he's a professional. Yeah. So. So it's a bank robber living within a bona fide, like, you know, naval hero guy. Right. So Tom began uh, weight training, and he combined that with his cycling training, and he was in the best shape of his life. But he was getting bored because it was just monotonous training every day. It's just so boring training for the Olympics. 
I just don't know what to do. So he started robbing banks again. That seems logical. He, uh, February 15th, he robbed a bank in Encinitas. February 29th, one in Solana Beach. March 1st, another bank in Encinitas. Two weeks after that, he robbed a bank in San Diego. March 24th, he robbed two banks on the same day. Oh my. The Southwest Community Bank in Encinitas and the U.S. Bank in Carlsbad. Wow. So, like, right after that, one morning, Tom woke to intense pain. He had thrown his back out from overtraining. He was in agony for weeks. Oh, so sorry that you're in agony, Mr. Bank Rubber. His whole plan to race in the Olympics was over. He couldn't even compete in the Olympic trials. Oh. So he Actually, that is really sad. I guess. For for most people. (laughs) (laughs) So he moved back to Chicago and he continued robbing banks. There's only so many banks around. There, he robs a crap ton of banks. <laughs> so, summer of 2001, Tom joined a cycling club. And the cycling club was put on, um, like, sponsored through a bike shop in town. Uh-huh. So, anyway, one day he learned that a lo- Oh, I neglected to mention, and I didn't write it down here, that at one point his bike had been stolen. So, he currently doesn't have a bike. So, how is he robbing banks without a bike? Well, he, the whole time he robbed banks, he had a bike, but just like recently, right before I'm about, uh, right before I'm about to say what I'm about to say, his bike had been stolen. Okay. So one day he learned that a local rider was selling a used Steelman bike. And so Steelman bikes are custom made for cyclists. So a person would go get measured and fitted for this bike. Wow. And the manufacturer, they're not even really a manufacturer. They're like more like a crafter because Uh this person, it's like a guy and he only makes so many bikes a year, like yeah. like a hundred bikes a year. And he makes them to the specifications yeah. of the person who's ordering. Uh-huh. That's really cool. So they're like, yeah, they're really hard to get bikes, especially used because people get them and keep them forever, right. pretty much. Well, because so, it's made to their body. Yeah, and they're mucho, mucho expensive. So he wanted this bike, but he was kind of torn because it was day glow orange. Yeah, that's not good for a bank robber. I know. A bright orange, very expensive bike. There's a picture of it in the um, Chicago Magazine article that I read, and it's really pretty bike. It's just, dude. Well, he could spray paint it, couldn't he? You just can't do that, though, to a Steelman bike. Well, then he needs to buy a different bike. But he bought it. Of course paid, he did. He paid 12- Because why not? If you're there for the, for the thrills, then why not ride an orange bike? Yeah, he paid $1,200 for it. So... That doesn't seem that expensive. No. Well, yeah, no. But by this time, Tom had stopped throwing all the money away from his robberies. He also started using drugs. Oh. So most of his friends. Just fr- good choice one after the other, uh-huh. this dude. Yeah. So most of his friends and like some of his family just assumed that he was probably dealing drugs because he always had money and cocaine. So they were just like, well, he doesn't work, and he's always got money, and he's always got cocaine. He's obviously dealing. Oh, so, my goodness. Um, that's a good cover if you ever want to be a bank robber. Just I'll always keep that in mind. carry around cocaine. That way you can explain your cash. <laughs> I don't ride bikes, though. I can't rob banks. Um, yeah, that's true. <laughs> so anyway, let's see. I don't think you can get away. So he, somehow he's somehow he goes back to California. They didn't really explain why, but he was in Walnut Creek, and which is Northern California, uh-huh. Bay Area, 
So March on March 7th, 2002, Tom robbed a bank in Walnut Creek. Uh, an officer, Greg Thompson, responded to the bank robbery call. And normally, like, their protocol is you set up a perimeter and, like, you know, blah, blah, blah. And he was just like, it never works. But he wasn't one to break protocol, so he just did it. Uh-huh. Well, so then he turns down this alley. And all of a sudden, this cyclist on a bright orange bike shoots out from a driveway. Ooh. And it looked to him, like, on one hand, he was just like, okay, this is Walnut Creek, Northern California, a lot of cyclists. Yeah. They're all dressed in, you know, cycling outfits, riding fancy bikes. He just thought it was like a weekend warrior kind of deal. And then he saw the messenger bag and thought, that's odd. Yeah. So who takes their messenger bag when they go for their exercise? I know. Ride. So Officer Thompson was like, I have a feeling I need to stop this bike. So he thought to himself, if I don't stop that guy, I'm going to wonder for the rest of my life. So he pulled... Pulled Tom over. Tom stopped and kind of pretended to be adjusting something on his bike. Uh-huh. And Officer Thompson said, can I look in your bag? And Tom kind of made something like where, yeah, yeah, no problem. And I just have to unclip these pedals because they're counterbalanced, which isn't even a thing. He just kind of made something up. And then he jumped back on his bike and took off. He's just BSing the dude. Yeah. To get a distraction. Yeah. So then a chase ensued. Because the car's not going to win. The car didn't win. Really? But Tom did end up ditching his bike because he kind of like crashed into a creek bed and then he had to keep running. So he took off, left his bike, and he ended up hiding in a dirt tunnel. It was like a one by three or two by something dirt tunnel that was probably like from a beaver or something like Uh that. He hid in there for like hours i bet he's getting his thrills now because they they brought out dogs and everything looking for him whoa how did he hide from the dogs he was just entrenched in this dirt tunnel but it's crazy that the dogs didn't find him. i know so tom got away but now the authorities had his bike so another officer not not our good friend officer thompson but another one took the bike to a bike shop and the person at the bike store was like oh yeah this is a custom-made bike this is a steelman they're made in Redwood City, which uh-huh. is also in the Bay Area. So he called to talk to Steelman himself. Wow. And Steelman's like, hey, you know, here, talk to my wife, because she keeps all the records. And the wife looked it up and said, oh, this was sold at a bike shop in Chicago. Uh-huh. So meanwhile, the FBI have been investigating all these bank robberies, and they had a nickname for the robber. They named him the Choir Boy. So the choir boy, why did they nickname him the choir boy? They named him the choir boy because in some of the surveillance videos, you can see he's just very like, he kind of like does this thing where he like bows in front of the person to like, kind of like look meek and reverent and not as he's robbing them as he's robbing them. Yeah. He doesn't come off threatening at all. So they named him the choir boy. So the manager. Oh, so anyway, FBI ends up contacting, um, the Chicago bike shop that was mentioned by the Steelmans and someone at the bike shop gave Tom's name to the police. How did they have Tom's name though? Cause they knew he purchased this bike. Oh, so it wasn't sold by a person. It was sold used from I, a shop. I think what it was is the person like kind of like a consignment deal. Like gotcha. you sell my bike and then, you know, I get some whatever. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. I was thinking like Craigslist type thing, you know, go to the person's house. Here's the bike. Here's the money. Yeah, no, I think it was like a consignment kind of deal. So Tom kind of knew the jig was up. So he went to Tijuana. He tried to buy a fake passport. 
But he ended up getting scammed by the shady people that he was trying to deal with. So mm-hmm. that didn't work. Um, so then he knew, like, I'm going to, I'm about to be caught. Uh-huh. So he thought that he would go back to Chicago to see his parents one last time. Okay. So he did. And he was at his parents' house when police chief Pat Carey, I think, I can't read my handwriting. Anyway. <laughs> I do that a lot. I know. Because I write so fast and rush. His name might be something very similar to that, but it's definitely Ch- police chief Pat something. Anyway, he's the next door neighbor from the justices and he got a notice from the fbi that they were looking for his neighbor tom justice oh my gosh so anyway tom was arrested just outside his parents house these poor parents i know but he gave a full confession he confessed to 26 bank robberies and he was sentenced to 11 years in federal prison he was released in 2011 and as of the date of the chicago magazine article he was working at a donut shop Okay. His parents were probably like, if only you were just a drug dealer. (laughs) Why can't you sell cocaine? (laughs) Oh my goodness. And so now he works at a donut. Doesn't he have a bachelor's degree? Oh, but I guess he's a convicted felon. Yeah. So that probably cuts your job prospects. I feel like though that, because he was a social worker and people, they really need people to do that. Like he should, I mean, he could go into, I don't know. I guess you can't be a social worker if you're a felon. Probably not. But I think I wish him some sort of confidentiality thing. I don't know. I wish him the best of luck. Go Tom Justice. (laughs) So yeah, that was. How much shit do you think he got on cell block A for having the last name of Justice? I know. Like a lot of like corny (laughs) one-liners. That's funny. So yeah, that was my story. That's Tom Justice. I like it. As always, we're not experts, not. so we probably got stuff wrong. Oh, I'm sure. I mispronounced, like, every French name in there. Yeah. We're just drunks. drunks. Hey, so we're going to be going all kinds of fun places this summer. And we a lot are. of other people yeah. are. So, I have an idea. Okay, what's your idea? What if, when you and I go places, we leave a card? And then what do we do with the card? Well, if people find the card, they can take a picture of themselves with the card and email us. And then what? Well, if they email us a picture of them with the card and their mailing address, we'll send them a sticker. Our stickers are kind of awesome. Our stickers are totally awesome. Okay, so where can they reach us? They can reach us at crimeandtimeotr at gmail.com. That's our email. And you can also reach us on social media at crime and time otr and that's for facebook or instagram at crime and time otr or twitter at crime and time otr right but email us the pictures of you with our cards at crime and time otr at gmail.com so we'll be sure to see it also if you have any cocktail suggestions or stories you want to hear let us know right totally and when we see the picture of you with the card you get a sticker and you get a sticker and you get a sticker and you get a sticker (laughs) 